Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're returning to Innsmouth for The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Part 2. But before we get into all that fishy stuff, what is going on? Well, in a couple of weeks, I'm off to Manchester, not Manchester by the sea, but just straight Manchester <laughs> on the 10th to the 12th of November 2023 for Grogmeet, a lovely little convention in the heart of Manchester, a game shop called Fanboy 3, which is huge for a game shop. You certainly wouldn't get game shops in London of this kind of scale, I don't think. Room downstairs for lots of games and nearby eateries and pubs that we visit. And I'll be turning up on the Friday along with Mike Mason, who is the special guest and I think is being interviewed on the Sunday morning. Check out grognardfiles.com for more information. And I shall be appearing on a live stream over at Symphony Entertainment on the 1st of November at... 3 p.m. Eastern Time in the US or 7 p.m. in the UK. This is going to be an improv game run by Graham Walmsley and with Bridget Jeffries and myself as players. It should run for about an hour and I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find more information. And speaking of actual plays, I've appeared in two new ones over at Ain't Slade Nobody. One of them... Eclipse of the Heart is out now, I believe in its entirety. This is a weird 1980s high school dance horror romantic weird thing run by our good friend Rena Henzi. And the other players included Camille Bruard, Catherine Edmonds, and of course Cappy Cap. And also on Ain't Slayed Nobody, there is a new series just starting. I believe the first episode is dropping the same day as this episode goes out, run by Harlan Guthrie of malevolent fame, and is called The Waking Children. It'll come out in, I think, about five or six episodes on a weekly basis. And yeah, this one is a lot of fun. The other players here are Nick Rosenberg, Bridget Jeffries, and again, Cappy Gap. So... I shall put links in the show notes to both of those as well. And now on to our main topic, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Part 2. We move on now to Chapter 2. Olmsted arrives outside Hammond's drugstore shortly before 10am to catch the Innsmouth bus. As the hour arrives, the locals appear to move away from the area. Eventually, a small motor coach of extreme decrepitude and dirty grey colour rattles into sight. I love that imagery, rattles into sight. I've had mm. a Ford Mondeo that rattled pretty much like the same way. <laughs> I rode in it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it had good brakes when it needed it, though. That was the main thing. <laughs> a half-illegible sign on the windshield reads, Arkham, Innsmouth, Newburyport. Three passengers... Dark, unkempt men of sullen visage shamble out silently with furtive purpose. Shortly after, the driver gets out and heads to the drugstore. 
Although he only glimpses the man, Olmsted feels a wave of spontaneous aversion. This is confirmed when Olmsted gets a better look at the man he assumes to be Joe Sargent. Yeah, it's, it's so ominous about this bus, right? Yeah. You know, when it turns up, people in the town move away. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> great. I guess they move away because they know what kind of people are going to be getting off it. But also, like, why are people from Innsmouth getting on a bus and travelling to, where are mm. we? Is this Newburyport? It is, yeah. So why are they coming here? I mean, I guess they kind of live normal lives to some degree. I don't know. What do you think they're doing? I guess there are certain goods and services that they can't get in Innsmouth and people have to come out to Newburyport and you know, do things. Maybe some of them even work in the area. I mean, they run vehicles. They trade liquor. I mean, bootleg liquor um, mm -hmm. and so on. So they, they've got businesses going. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they're just a bunch of, you know, monsters. Well, and also, as we'll see soon, there are businesses from outside Innsmouth that operate within Innsmouth as well. So it's not completely cut off from the outside world. It's just unwelcoming. I feel like in uh, At the Mountains of Madness, the great revelation, you know, he sort of says, and they were scientists. <laughs> you know, they were men. These are like, and they were businessmen. <laughs> <laughs> the, the true horror right there. Yeah. Uh. Uh. But yes, we get this description of Joe Sargent. He was a thin, stoop-shouldered man, not much under six feet tall, dressed in shabby blue civilian clothes and wearing a frayed grey golf cap. His age was perhaps 35, but the odd, deep creases in the side of his neck made him seem older when one did not study his dull, expressionless face. He had a narrow head, bulging, watery blue eyes that seemed never to wink, a flat nose, a receding forehead and chin, and singularly undeveloped ears. His long, thick lip and coarse-pored, greyish cheeks seemed almost beardless, except for some sparse yellow hairs that straggled and curled in irregular patches. And, in places... The surface seemed queerly irregular, as if peeling from some cutaneous disease. His hands were large and heavily veined, and he had a very unusual greyish-blue tinge. The fingers were strikingly short in proportion to the rest of the structure, and seemed to have a tendency to curl closely into the huge palm. As he walked toward the bus, I observed his peculiarly shambling gait and saw that his feet were inordinately immense. The more I studied them, the more I wondered how he could buy any shoes to fit them. I had that problem for years trying to search for size 13 shoes. When I met you, Matt, I didn't look at you thinking, my God, I wonder where he buys his shoes. <laughs> But I wonder whether that means that one of the other unsung industries in Innsmouth is cordwainers. Is that some kind of cobblers? Cobblers repair shoes, cordwainers make them. Do they? Yeah. Like Northampton? <laughs> yes. I feel like this guy is always going to sign up for my game as well. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one deep one at the table. Look at the list and his name's going to be on it. Joe Sargent, number three. Great. The snacks he brings, they're just dreadful. 
dried seaweed. That's Dorwood. Yeah, I was going to say, there's there's a lot of similarities I'm picking up here. Yeah. Mm. Actually, yeah. Yes, dried cuttlefish. That's budgies, man. Budgies eat dried cuttlefish. Mm. And cockatiels as well. Budgies eat cockatiels? No, cuttlefish, because they need the calcium to help, especially when they're laying eggs, because it helps build the shells up. I mean, how would they catch them in the wild? They sit there with their little fishing lines. Yeah. I think we're getting off topic. Okay, that's my fault. I'm sorry. (laughs) Olmsted's revulsion intensifies when he catches scent of the man's fishy odour, as if Sergeant had been lounging around the fish docks. No sensible human person does that, lounging around like a at a deck chair, getting that waft of aroma in from Mm. from the dock. No way. Tasty. Lounging around the fish docks does sound like a euphemism for something, doesn't it? You've been lounging around the fish docks, haven't you? Definite cruising vibe. (laughs) Trying to pin down the man's ancestry in fairly typical racist Lovecraftian terms, Olmsted instead settles upon biological degeneration rather than alienage. Sorry to see that he is to be the only passenger. Olmsted boards the bus. The driver looks at Olmsted oddly when he asks to go to Innsmouth, but the bus soon sets off. Locals seem to avoid looking at the vehicle as it rattles out of town. The bus travels along the highway towards Ipswich, but turns off onto a much rougher road, passing over crude wooden bridges that span tidal creeks. There are no visible houses at first, but Olmsted eventually spots some ruins, remembering that the area had been inhabited before the epidemic of 1846. This area is now covered with sand drifts, following the unwise cutting of woodlands near the shore. This description of the landscape on the shore there doesn't 100% match what I understand the area that Lovecraft based this on to look like. And the only reason that occurred to me is a little while back I ran for How We Roll, Brian Quartermanch's scenario, The Star Brothers, which Mm. is set in and around Ipswich, just on the edge of these salt marshes. And Brian is from the New England area. He grew up around here and he knows the area well and he describes the landscape in, in some detail. From the scenario, he says, Ipswich is a small coastal community on the Massachusetts North Shore, a short ride from Arkham and connected to ill-rumoured Innsmouth, some 2.5 miles distant, via a stretch of lonesome salt marsh. And these salt marshes, when Brian talked about them in the scenario, I was moved to find pictures of them online to get some idea of what they looked like. And they look very different to what Lovecraft's describing here. Yes, there are these tidal inlets, but it's this weird, almost maze of waterways that are cutting through the land. It it looks, in places, almost like a fractal pattern. But these kind of curling tentacles of seawater cutting the land apart. And the land itself, maybe towards the shore there are these drifts of sand, but the land that the bus would be passing through at this stage is covered in tall reeds. I mean, reeds about as tall as a person, which, if you look at these pictures, is really quite an eerie landscape. Mm. 
it's not the landscape love trust describing here, but I think it's eerie for different reasons. And certainly when I've run stuff that's set in the area, I've drawn very much on that aspect because I think, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting environment for gaming. It was as if the bus were about to keep on in its ascent, leaving the sane earth altogether and merging with the unknown arcana of upper air and cryptical sky. The smell of the sea took on ominous implications, and the silent driver's bent, rigid back and narrow head became more and more hateful. And I just love that image yeah. that yeah. you're going up because sometimes like the sky and the sea kind of join together when you're going on a bus by the, the sea. I'm not quite sure that's the case here, but he talks about you know, merging with the, the unknown arcana, like the sky, the upper air and the, and the, uh, mm. and the, the sky somehow you just get, I don't know, I just, I just think that's a great turn of phrase. Reaching the crest of a hill, Olmsted beholds the valley below and the Nuxit River flowing through it to the sea just north of the long line of cliffs that culminate in Kingsport Head. He even catches the sight of the queer ancient house of which so many legends are told perched atop the head. Mm, I wonder what that place could be. We haven't heard of that before. What is <laughs> this, a crossover episode? <laughs> or as uh, the quote from one of the books that gets used in In the Mouth of Madness, this reads like a guidebook. <laughs> then looking down into the valley... Olmsted catches his first sight of Innsmouth. It was a town of wide extent and dense construction, yet one with a pretentious dearth of visible life. From the tangle of chimney pots, scarcely a wisp of smoke came, and the three tall steeples loomed stark and unpainted against the seaward horizon. The vast huddle of sagging gambrel roofs and peat gables conveyed with offensive clearness the idea of wormy decay, and as we approached along the now descending road, I could see that many roofs had wholly caved in. The decay was worst close to the waterfront, though in its very midst I could spy the white belfry of a fairly well-preserved brick structure which looked like a small factory. The harbour, long clogged with sand, was enclosed by an ancient stone breakwater, at whose end were what looked like the foundations of a bygone lighthouse. Here and there, the ruins of wharves jutted out from the shore to end in indeterminate rottenness. And far out to sea, despite a high tide, I glimpsed a long black line scarcely rising above the water, yet carrying a suggestion of odd latent malignancy. This I knew must be Devil Reef. As I looked, a subtle, curious sense of beckoning seemed superadded to the grim repulsion. And, oddly enough, I found this overtone more disturbing than the primary impression. We need a little bell to go every time there's a bit of foreshadowing here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also, Lovecraft loves talking about gambrel roofs and gables, but I think mm. this is the first time I've seen him mention both in a single sentence. Mm -hmm. I just feel like this is the winning square on a bingo card. Yeah, he's very into his architecture in this one. With an overlay of wormy decay. Hmm. 
We talk about Lovecraft's love of architecture, and he goes on about it himself an awful lot, but there are comparatively few architectural terms that he uses in his stories. I mean, part of that may just be because of the, the commonalities of New England architecture, but I'd say it's fair to say that the vast majority of times Lovecraft mentions an architectural feature in his stories, it is either a gambrel roof or a gable. Hmm. The bus passes ruined farms and then a few inhabited houses on the outskirts of town with rags stuffed in the broken windows and shells and dead fish lying about the littered yards. Olmsted spies people tending to their gardens or digging for clams on the beach. Almost all have certain peculiarities of face and motions which Olmsted instinctively dislikes but also finds oddly familiar. I'm just bemused by the description of people just having dead fish lying around their yards. Yeah, that is weird. Better than eating them. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this is the Innsmouth equivalent of putting a gnome out on your doorstep or something like that. Just scatter the lawn with dead fish. Heading into town across cobbled streets, Olmsted hears the steady note of a waterfall through the unnatural stillness. The most nauseous, fishy odour imaginable pervades the air, and I feel sick already. (laughs) I think, again, we did this in a Lovecraftian Word of the Week a while back, didn't we? The way that Lovecraft, obviously writing in the time he did, uses nauseous in a way that people don't tend to these days, because nauseous originally meant inspiring nausea, as opposed to feeling sick. And it's one of these words that's meaning seems to have changed over the years. There was a thing I underlined in the text here, and there's a a sentence I'm going to read, because it is is Mm. around this time. And... It does use some other architectural terms. Oh. But there was one of note that I wanted just to to draw the attention to because I didn't know what it was. There were some large square Georgian houses too with hipped roofs, cupolas and railed widow's walks. And I thought, what's a widow's walk? Mm. And it's like a a raised up area on the roof, like a platform on the roof with a, a, a walk, well, a railing around it. And historically, I mean, I looked it up and it's called a roof walk, a railed rooftop platform, often having an inner cupola or turret, frequently found on 19th century New York coastal houses. The name is said to come from the wives of mariners who would watch for their spouse's return, uh-huh. often in vain, as the ocean took the lives, leaving the women widows. Huh. And what was the style of Ruth that was mentioned there? Hipped. H-I-P-P-E-D. I know what a cupola is, because I've used it in yeah. a scenario. Yeah. Well, I've used them a lot in car wars as well. You get pop-up cupolas, all sorts. Brilliant. Isn't it pronounced cupola? I don't know. I don't know. I've only ever seen it written down. Cupola, cupola, tomato, tomato. I think it's more, yeah, it's more of an accent thing. Mm. But yeah, I don't know what a hip roof is. It's like a hipster, but uh, not quite fully developed yet. Rather than guessing, I'm just going to Google. (laughs) Well, that won't catch on. I guess it's like the roofs that we see in a lot of British structures where it's four-sided to longer sides 
and then two shorter ones at the front and back, or depending on the dimensions of the building. So you've got the two triangular roofs as well, you mean? Yeah, I think that's what he means by the shorter ones. Yeah, and it looks like there is possibly a flat section across the top, but not always. But yeah, yes, I shall put a link in the show notes. Ooh, actually, I've just found a guide to roof types. This needs to be a whole Call of Cthulhu supplement, surely. I've long suggested that someone should write Gables and Gambrels, the game of Lovecraftian architecture. I'm seeing them everywhere now, Scott. Now you've said he only uses two architectural terms. I'm seeing belfries, belfried structure. <laughs> I'm going to keep calling them out. <laughs> Bats in there. Definitely. But I think it's fair to say if you go through his stories, you will find a lot of gambrel roofs and a lot of gables. Oh, definitely. And I love going to America and seeing these gambrel roofs because they're not yeah. something you see in Britain very much. No, I remember when we went to Necronomicon in 2017 and took that long walk through Providence. We passed an awful lot of gambrel roofs and an awful lot of gables. Mm. And so, yeah, I can see why they were so heavily on Lovecraft's mind, because he was surrounded by the fucking things. We'll be back in a few minutes to discuss more architectural oddities, but before we do so, we have a little commercial for you. This Halloween, the looters are facing their fears. Now I have that fear. Now Dude, I'm, like I, I'm realizing I'm yeah. scared of everything. You just unlocked my new fear. I live in a constant state of anxieties. With Deanna Nuval. Mm, spiders. Melinda Macklem. I feel like I say I'm fine with heights until I actually am up high. And special guests, Tina Wonglu. Wait, I'm scared of a head-on collision. And Madeline Hours. Episiotomies. I'm so sorry. <laughs> But these final girls are dead set on getting out alive. Never separate from the group. Don't go upstairs. No camping. Don't be a person of color. And just kidding. I can't avoid that. Join us on October 24th and the 31st for the final final girls. A horrifying two-part special with Game Master Andrew Gauntlet. Uh, boo. Lock your doors, check your back seats, and tune into the Looters feed wherever you get your podcasts. Do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. And now we're back with more discussion of roofs. Buildings near the shore look squalid, while those further inland make Olmsted think of departed grandeur. While there were no people on the streets, Olmsted spies the occasional motor car and curtained window. His revulsion is replaced by antiquarian enthusiasm, he's definitely a Cthulhu investigator then, as he sees more and more preserved 19th century structures. His architecture sense is tingling. He's put a lot of points into it, that's the thing. <laughs> The only disagreeable feature to Olmsted is the old town green, where he spots a large pillared hall near two churches. Spotting the sign outside, reading Esoteric Order of Dagon, he realises that this must be the former Masonic Hall. 
It's a shame you don't get to see the inside of it, because I remember going to a Masonic Hall when I went out to one of my trips to Canada years ago, and I remember it being a really nice place inside. But you only get to see this glimpse of the exterior. You don't get to see the kind mm. of magnificence of some of the halls inside. Pity. I was a little disappointed by that, because I had vague recollections that he does go in, but clearly he doesn't. No. And also, on my recent trip, uh, which I alluded to in the previous episode, I think, up to Whitby, I went to, I think this was in Scarborough. I'll share the picture with you, Scott. Maybe you can include it in the mm. show notes. But there's a what looks like a now disused building. Like a, It was probably an old church stroke chapel. And it's disused, boarded up. But there's, in a fantastic script above the arched doors, it says... Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, I think. It looks like the bloody hysteric order of Dagon to me. <laughs> it's it's marvellous, I think. Sandwiched between a, a piercing shop and a tattoo parlour, I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> It's a beautiful building. Weirdly sandwiched between two places that almost could be the same business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the raucous tones of a cracked bell come from a tower jutting up from the hall, ringing out the hour. Olmsted is struck by horror when he sees a figure silhouetted in the doorway of one of these churches that he's passing. It's not the esoteric order, but it's one of the churches, though he cannot understand exactly what it was that freaked him out so much, because he only catches like a passing glimpse of this figure, but there's something clearly wrong. It's usually my fear of spontaneous combustion that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I go past a church. Oh, I see. Uh, I'm glad you explained that. I thought you just had a general fear of spontaneous human combustion. I mean, you did grow up in the 80s. Very true. It was kind of the 80s version of uh, what the 70s had for quicksand, I feel like. <laughs> this figure is a pastor. Robed in peculiar vestments, Olmsted realises that his disquiet stems from the headdress worn by the figure, which resembles the tiara shown to him by Miss Tilton. Hmm. Happily, however, the bus continues on, passing over a wide iron-railed highway bridge. Olmsted sees a large river gorge ahead and some factory buildings off to the side. Finally, the bus stops in a large semicircular square across the river, drawing up in front of a tall cupola-crowned building with remnants of yellow paint and with a half-effaced sign proclaiming it to be the Gilman House. Olmsted can only see one person around, an elderly man who does not seem to have the Innsmouth look. Now, I think this is the first time we see the phrase Innsmouth look, and it's something uh, Olmsted coins himself. Yeah. But Olmsted decides not to bother him. Instead, he surveys the slant-roofed brick buildings on roads radiating out from the square, noting how dismal the street lighting is. Olmsted is glad he plans to leave before dark. Wait a minute, it's daylight now, isn't it? How is he noting how dismal the street lighting is? I think he's noting more that there aren't many street lights around, but dismal mm. is the word he uses, yeah. So just going back to that pastor, one of the things we, we missed was the pastor is, is dressed in unusual clothes, not what you'd expect. And we get uh, information that the East Terrick Order of Dagon has modified the ritual of local churches. Mm. So it's like... We're being told that even religion here, even like, I guess, the Christian religion, has been subverted in some way. 
It's not just that there's the esoteric order of Dagon, but the other churches have been corrupted. Yeah, we we see a bit more of that later on. I think we'll come to that, where there's talk from the clerk at the grocery store about the way that the worship of the churches is altered. But it's just nice how we get that little hint of it here, I think. Mm. Just me from a design perspective, just even just the fairly innocuous, again, going back to that hint of wrongness, semicircular mm. square. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? But when I think about like um, Indianapolis, it's got, I mean, I don't think it's called the square, but it's quite a common feature is that monument circle. Yeah, monument circle is that circular. Yeah. And I kind of picture this a bit similar. I know it's only a semicircle, but I wonder if that's a common feature in American towns. Is that sort of semicircular, you know, <laughs> what we might think of as a town square? But it is strange. I agree. Well, the first hotel that I stayed at in Indianapolis for Gen Con, anyway, I'd been there the year before, was uh, just on Monument Circle. And boy, is that a sweltering slog to walk that way in the heat for Gen Con to get to the convention centre. But that's not so far away from the convention centre, right? In that heat, it felt like 10 miles. Yeah, (laughs) sure. There are around a dozen shops nearby, including a branch of the first national chain of grocery stores. So even retail chains managed to get out here. It's like a Starbucks on every corner. Mm. (laughs) A dismal restaurant, a drugstore, and a wholesale fish dealer's office, as well as the offices of the Marsh Refining Company. I do like this detail, though, of this chain of grocery stores that has extended into Innsmouth. It does anchor Innsmouth in the same world as everything else, and... I think if you're creating this insular hidden community like this in a game, it's really easy to cut it off completely from the surroundings and not have any ties to neighbouring communities and so on. Mm. Because, oh, they're weird, they're shunned, and they don't like outsiders. But it's a bit more permeable in Innsmouth. I mean, sure, they don't like outsiders very much, and it's not exactly a a happening tourist destination, but it's not completely cut off. No, there's definitely traffic back and forth, as we saw with the bus going to Newburyport, taking Mm. Innsmouth residents there, and there's clearly people coming from outside into Innsmouth. Not a lot, as you say, but some. Olmsted decides to go to the grocery store, where he learns that the clerk is not a local, but instead commutes in from Ipswich. Despite the clerk's incomplete local knowledge, he is more than happy to serve as the next exposition dispenser. But I have to say, it doesn't feel heavy-handed, like, you know, here's a big information dump to me. It just feels like he, it feels like a, a very credible thing. He's going in and talking to the guy, just the same as he talked to the ticket clerk in, in Newburyport. But they do give a lot of information. I mean, you're absolutely right about them being uh, clue dispensers, but still. I guess it just felt more transparent that this was the way it was working because I was working to summarise all this for the script and breaking down these sections and was very conscious of 
the way that when we get to certain characters here, there would be like you know, three pages of solid information mm. that the character yeah. was monologuing at Olmsted. Miss Tilton isn't quite as bad in that respect. She no. gives a bit of information, but it's like a couple of paragraphs. But yeah, the, the ticket clerk, now the grocery clerk, they monologue. They monologue like fuck. Not quite jumping ahead, but there is a comment that's made later about Olmsted's eyes. Makes me wonder if he can see this dangling neon <laughs> sign pointing down at various NPCs that says, talk to this person to get an info dump. <laughs> Got a flash arrow above their head. That's it. The clerk, a young fella, as we said from Ipswich, doesn't like Innsmouth, especially the fishy smell. I mean, that's horrible. But he, he needs the job, you know? So he talks to Olmsted and he's like, there's no public library here or chamber of commerce. And Olmsted can probably still find his way about. That said, he warns Olmsted not to be too conspicuous, especially north of the river, as outsiders sometimes disappear there. I mean, that's pretty damn ominous. It's like, <laughs> can you imagine going to the local shop? And he might sort of say, oh, don't go to that area of town because it's not very safe. I mean, I guess that's kind of what he's saying, right? It's a local river for local people. I don't know. I've been to certain places where you get warnings, you know, don't go to this area, particularly don't go there after dark and so on. I don't think I've ever been warned. People disappear there. Yeah, you might get mugged or something. Yeah. But yeah, disappear is like another level. Yeah. Great police force in this town. Very efficient. Mm-hmm. There are other places to avoid too, especially the Marsh Refinery, the Churches on the Green, and the Esoteric Order of Dagon. So that explains why he doesn't go in. Grumble, grumble, grumble. <laughs> the clerk says that the services at the church seem as odd as what goes on at the Order, with sermons about marvellous transformations leading to bodily immortality. Their major festivals are on the 30th of April and 31st of October. Nothing ominous with that date whatsoever. <laughs> when the parishioners spend the night chanting. All perfectly normal. But the fact they spend the night chanting as well is great. Now, the clerk has a low opinion of the locals. Surprise, surprise. Wondering how they spend their time beyond fishing and drinking bootleg liquor. <laughs> what more do you want in your life? <laughs> they seem sullenly banded together in some sort of fellowship and understanding despising the world as if they had access to other and preferable spheres of entity. I mean, they just sound like a bunch of middle-aged blokes to me, just spending their time fishing and drinking liquor. I mean, yeah. and banding together in some sort of weird fellowship. It does also sound like just the kind of thing you'd hear a casual racist complaining about, you know, sort of these lazy so-and-sos, they just spend all their time drinking and fishing and lying around and they keep to themselves, you know, I don't know what they get up to. And yeah, I mean, I've heard comments like that before in other perhaps less savoury circumstances and it sets sets my hackles going. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you get it like that, but you also get it without any racist overtone, right? I mean, you, you're... I guess it also equally applies to people complaining about the youth of today and so on. Oh, God, yeah. But I've seen that kind of thing in racist context so much that, yeah, it, it feels like a dog whistle to me. 
But it's every group of people complaining about every other group of people, isn't it? I mean, old people have had it easy. Young people have got it easy. I don't know. It's the middle-aged people that have got it tough, I tell you. <laughs> Damn right. You're not middle-aged, Matt. You're not 40 yet, not for a few weeks. Yeah. Actually, when this goes out, Matt will be 40. Scarily enough. Paul, I don't know how much longer you and I can claim to be middle-aged. A fucking long time. I think we're pretty much about to teeter over from middle-aged to just old. It's like that old cartoon, you know, where you've got the guy um, with that poster on the wall saying, never trust anyone over 30, crossed out 35, crossed out 40, <laughs> crossed out. Never trust anyone under 60. It just goes on. It's fine. Anyway, you'll get there before me, Scott. You're, you're old. <laughs> Uh, fuck. Anyway, swimming is a major local pastime for some reason, including races out to Devil Reef, and all the locals seem to excel at it. The clerk muses about how you only see younger locals, suggesting that the Innsmouth look might progress with age, to the point where those afflicted by it hide from sight. While such people are never seen, strange sounds can sometimes be heard coming from apparently empty houses. There are also rumours that the buildings are connected by a network of underground tunnels. This reminds me of when I went to San Francisco and there was a bunch of people getting in the sea and swimming out to Alcatraz. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is quite a challenge. I don't fancy that at all. There's only certain times of the day they can do it because of the currents resulting from the tides mm. going around the island make it almost impossible to get there and very dangerous if you get sucked out to sea. Mm. Not recommended. No, I'm not doing it. Nah. Yeah. The clerk suggests that the only local who might offer more information, so be the next exposition dump, is Zadok Allen, the town drunk. He is 96 years old and somewhat touching the head. <laughs> what a shock. Maybe he might open up if Olmsted brought him a drink, although his stories tend to be incomplete hints of impossible marvels and horrors which could have had no source save in its own disordered fancy. Why refer him to him? He's like, <laughs> hey, you know what? You could go and talk to this drunk guy, but he will just tell you, like, mad nonsense of, of marvels and horrors that have no source but his own imagination. <laughs> what? But please buy any of the booze that we have on offer here, despite it being prohibition. I know this would be after prohibition, wouldn't it? So please buy some of our booze and get me get me some money in the till and earn my keep. This is in prohibition. Yeah, they do mention bootleg liquor earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, this is taking place in 1927, so six years before the end of prohibition. Gotcha. I don't think he buys the alcohol here, does he? No. If Olmsted wishes to speak to him... The clerk advises doing so surreptitiously, as the locals don't like it when Alan talks to outsiders. The other non-natives tend to stay indoors at night, as the streets are loathsomely dark. While fish are in abundance, for some reason, falling prices mean that they provide less of an income for the locals. Most of the town's money comes from the gold refinery, the elder Marsh has retired from public life, despite being something of a dandy in his youth, and his sons now run the business. These children are also starting to look very strange. 
One daughter is described as reptilian. Well, that's a great turn on right there. <laughs> yes. And is usually bedecked in weird jewellery similar to the tiara. Local priests also wear such jewellery. Besides the marshes, there are three major families in Innsmouth. The Waits, the Gilmans and the Elliots. Yeah, so we encounter these names in other Lovecraft stories, don't we? So we've got mm, yeah, the yeah. Waits. Asenath Waits, you might remember from the thing on the doorstep. And she is definitely of Innsmouth heritage as well, so it all ties into this. And we have Paul Gilman from Dreams in the Witch House. And I'm sure there's an Elliot at some stage, isn't there? Or maybe I'm imagining that. It sounds credible, but I don't remember an Elliot. The first two names seem more familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That unseen House of Elliot that maybe appeared in a BBC drama from back in the 90s, but otherwise never seen. <laughs> Before Olmstead departs, the clerk draws a rough sketch map of the town, warning that most of the street signs are missing. Now, that's something to note <laughs> for later. Most of the street signs are missing. Olmstead also buys some cheese crackers and ginger wafers to sustain him. God, I hope they're not cheddars. <laughs> then heads out for his day's sightseeing. They're the worst kind of biscuit, aren't they, Cheddars? I like them. Ah. But this is Lovecraft again doing his author insert thing. Because oh, God, yeah. He lived on crackers, apparently, crackers and tins of beans. And yeah. they provided cheap sustenance for him when he was traveling. So, yeah, yeah, this is Lovecraft writing what he knows. But also that thing about most of the street signs being missing, that <laughs> that just takes me back to trying to navigate around North London. Because during the Second World War, the British government decided to take down street signs in a lot of places, hmm. basically place to make names. it harder yeah. if the Germans invaded so they couldn't find their way around. And uh, I don't think they ever put them back in North London because in the days before SatNav, I remember looking up a map and trying to navigate my way around there, then driving around and looking for street signs so I knew where I was and not being able to find one of them. Nowhere. None. Don't tell him your street name, Pike. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of Dad's Army because I'm pretty certain there's, in the <laughs> film adaptation there is that scene where someone's asking, what's the direction to Warmington-on-Sea as a guy is up a ladder painting over the sign that says Warmington-on-Sea <laughs> this way? <laughs> yeah. Passing beyond the refinery, Olmsted strikes a region of utter desertion which somehow makes him shudder. Collapsing huddles of gambrel roofs formed a jagged and fantastic skyline, above which rose the ghoulish, decapitated steeple of an ancient church. Some houses along Main Street were tenanted, but most were tightly boarded up. Down unpaved side streets, I saw the black, gaping windows of deserted hovels, many of which leaned at perilous and incredible angles, through the sinking part of the foundations. Those windows stared so spectrally that it took courage to turn eastward toward the waterfront. Certainly the terror of a deserted house swells in geometrical rather than arithmetical progression as houses multiply to form a city of dark desolation. 
The sight of such endless avenues, of fishy-eyed vacancy and death, and the thought of such linked infinities of black brooding compartments, given over to cobwebs and memories and the conqueror worm, start up vestigial fears and aversions that not even the stoutest philosophy can disperse. I want to take us back. There's one bit in here that that kind of jarred with me. His use of the terror of a deserted house swells in geometrical rather than arithmetical progression. It's like, (laughs) it's such a weird turn of phrase. You see, I really like that because it conveys that sense of how once you get past a handful of deserted houses, the overall effect just snowballs and becomes cumulative until it becomes oppressive. And yeah, I mean, it may be an odd way of stating it, particularly if you're not familiar with the difference between geometrical and arithmetical progressions. But I don't know, it, it really worked for me. <laughs> well, I, I just think it's a, yeah, I think it's a slightly clumsy way of putting it to me. But I mean, I like the idea. I don't know, I guess it's betraying Lovecraft's kind of uh, scientific mind, mm. the adoption of such kind of mathematical terms in this descriptive text. And yet at the other end of the spectrum, he manages to sneak in a uh, quick Poe reference there as well. <laughs> yes. Mm. The Conqueror Worm, you mean, is that? Indeed, yeah. Olmsted travels along the eerily quiet Fish Street and Water Street, which I mean, are just so on-the-nose names for streets in Innsmouth. Mm. But the only people he can see are the scattered fishermen who are sitting there on the distant breakwater. Once he heads north of the river, however, he sees active fishpacking houses and smoke from a few chimneys. The people in this area have a more pronounced version of the Innsmouth look. Mm. What most unsettles Olmsted is the sounds coming from boarded-up buildings. Creakings, scurryings and hoarse, doubtful noises. He wonders what the voices of the locals might sound like, as he's yet to hear one speak. We could all do with some more hoarse, doubtful noises in our lives. Sounds like me on a Monday morning. Olmsted hurries out of the slum and towards New Church Green, although he is nervous about passing the church where he saw the strange figure earlier. Instead, he crosses north of the green, entering the decayed patrician neighbourhood of Northern Broad, Washington, Lafayette and Adams streets. Now, it really occurred to me that these names of these streets sort of hark back to the grand figures of America and how Mm. we're seeing the decline of this city, but particularly uh, the decline of this neighbourhood, which, you know, it's got Washington, Lafayette, Adams, two of them like US presidents. And it just kind of reinforces how even those names, those grand names from american history have now become decayed and uh and lost and also the amount of detail that lovecraft goes into with street names and the relative locations of everything i was working on the scripts for later episodes the other night and Again, I was just taken with the the sheer quantity of information. And I know Lovecraft did draw a rough map of Innsmouth, which apparently was reproduced in the Something About Cats collection from Arkham House. But 
Even without that basic map, just from his descriptions of these street names and Olmsted's travels through them and how they all relate to each other, and he gives cardinal points the whole time as well, you could really reconstruct a map of Innsmouth just from his descriptions. I mean, actually, reading through the story this time, I was uh, using Leslie Klinger's book, mm. which includes that map yeah. and a couple of other maps. And I did find it much easier having the map in front of me to look at with these names of streets, because just being given that, the, mm. you know, he'll say, oh, I turned left into Lafayette Street and then down Broad Street and then I took a right and all these things. I'm not very good at picturing all that in my head. Yeah. But once it was on a map in front of me, I was like, oh, this is I can I can trace where he went. It actually brought it more to life to me rather than just an abstract list of instructions. Because I'm one of those people, if I stop the car, right? I mean, luckily we've got Google Maps nowadays and it's a blessing. If I stop and ask for directions <laughs> and they'll say, oh, okay, yeah. So you go down here, you take, you see the roundabout, yeah, yeah you go left, and about 100 yards, there's a, there's a little right, don't take that one, 200 yards, and, and then I'm lost. And as soon as I drive <laughs> off, I'm like, what did he say? Yeah, I think he said left at the next roundabout and then the rest is just, <laughs> just, just a blur. So... Having these maps in front of me that I can actually look at of Innsmouth, and they're not just something somebody has made up. They're based on ones that Lovecraft, well, Lovecraft made up, right? But he's yeah. the author, and they're they're based on the maps that he drew and the, the additional information in the story, which creates a place that you can almost feel you could visit. You know, they really bring it to life. You and I... Paul, have discussed on the podcast before whether you might have a Fantasia. I know I certainly do. I know I can't visualise stuff like this. It, that part of my brain just doesn't work. And I, I think you, you suggested that that might be the case for you as well. And I wonder whether people who don't have a Fantasia, who've got really vivid visual imaginations, had the same trouble following this stuff in the story. Because certainly, I mean, like you say, the map helps there, but I was finding with the later parts of it, particularly, that this stuff was just washing over me because I had no visual frame of reference in my mind for what it all meant. And so... It yeah. all just seemed to be completely abstract. But if you are able to visualise stuff like that, you know, I, I, Matt, I mean, do you have much of a visual imagination? Can you picture stuff like this when, when you see it in the stories? I generally can, but with this particular instance, at least remembering when I actually listened to the audio version of this rather than read it off the page that the HPLHS did in their collected works of Lovecraft, mm. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, it's so, so mm. good. I wholeheartedly, 110% recommend listening to it. It's such a, good, oh, yeah. such a good reading. It didn't so much provide a detailed like, camera view watching Olmstead walking through the streets, like turning here, turning there, turning there. Mm. I just more visioned it as almost like a montage sequence, that it was like postcard images of, right, he's walking down this street, now he's walking down this street. And I just didn't mm. really worry about where things were in relation to each other. It was more just the individual set pieces that I kind of had this vision of in my mind's eye for this, because the route itself didn't really seem that important. It was more the places that he went to along the way that, that were the standouts for me. Yeah, I think I was the same until I read it with a map. And then I was like, oh, actually, that brought it more to life for me. But yeah, yeah, I think until that, it's just a, a group of snapshots. But but it's almost like they, they just become a blur to me. You know, the, those those sequence of postcards, as you described them, they all kind of look a bit the same. 
I mean, if there are any listeners out there who have got strong visual imaginations who were taken on a tour of Innsmouth through this description and the street names and so on, I'd love to hear from you just because this stuff fascinates me, how different people experience fiction in different ways and whether stuff like this that really doesn't work for me for that reason works well for others. I think I imagine the noises and the voices and the hmm. so on more more clearly yeah i have no trouble imagining sounds in my head i can mm. hear voices i can play back music in my head and so on it's just the visual part that doesn't work yeah same anyway here in this patrician neighborhood the elm-lined avenues are filled with mansions although most of them are decrepit and boarded up Olmsted takes the most sumptuous mansion to be that of Old Man Marsh. The upstairs windows of all of these homes are tightly shuttered, but Olmsted cannot escape the feeling of being watched. Shuttered upper rooms seem to be a common theme. We saw that in mm. Dunwich as well, uh, the Dunwich Horror. The implication is there are people or things or monsters shut away behind shuttered and boarded up windows and doors particularly upstairs, it seems. Well, there's the, I was going to say tradition, that's maybe not the right word for it, but there were the um, disappointments rooms that you used to have towards the top of the houses, which I think were more of a sudden thing, admittedly, in the US. They weren't so much of a thing in the north, like where Innsmouth is supposed to be, but where mm. you'd have the, um, as the name suggests, the disappointments of the family, the kids you didn't want the rest of the world to see that they kept up in the attic, out of sight and out of mind. Right. Yeah, except here it's probably the the older folks in the town. And ultimately, it seems like Innsmouth may be a disappointments town. Another disquieting aspect of Innsmouth is that Olmsted has yet to see a dog or a cat. I imagine it's the latter of the two there that made Lovecraft more upset. <laughs> He's even more unnerved when the bell rings again, marking the hour of 3pm. Heading towards the river, Olmsted passes an industrial district and the derelict railway station. Furtive, shambling creatures stared cryptically in my direction, and more normal faces eyed me coldly and curiously. Innsmouth was rapidly becoming intolerable. I just love the idea that things are becoming intolerable for him here, at this point. I mean, Olmsted, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Passing by the fire station, Olmsted spots a red-faced bushy-bearded, watery-eyed old man in nondescript rags sitting on a bench, talking with a pair of unkempt but not abnormal-looking firemen. This, he realises, must be Zadok Allen, the man who can provide him with the mother of all info dumps. We're going to delve into this info dump, but I feel that doesn't really... It is an info dump, but it's so much more. Oh, yeah. I've read the story a couple of times in preparation for this. And like Matt said, listening to uh, Andrew Lehman of the HPLHS read it, I really do think of many of Lovecraft's stories, this is a good one to recommend to people because it's it just comes off the page so well. The, the writing, it doesn't have some of the laborious prose style that, that some of his other yeah. stories perhaps has. Everything just seems to, to build up and, and come together so well. I think it's just a great story. And Zadok Allen's monologue kind of exemplifies that, I think. 
Yeah, the only reason, really, I wouldn't recommend it to new Lovecraft readers is the length. I think if you're trying to at least give people uh, an introduction to Lovecraft, I'll stick with my normal recommendation of Pickman's model, just because that's like 5,000 words long, maybe even shorter, and Mm. this is uh, 26,000, 27,000 words long. It's more of a commitment and... If someone is struggling a bit with Lovecraft's prose, even though this is better, as you say, than a lot of his other stories, then the sheer length of it might be off-putting, but Pickman's model is the right kind of length, I think just as a sampler to see whether Lovecraft is, is for you. I mean, maybe so. I mean, it's still a short story, right? But it, but it is one of the longer ones of his. Technically, I think it's a novelette at that length. Uh, but yeah, that's getting into niceties. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Sign off with the thanks to Maelstrom UK. And also thank you very much to Xander Ford. And thank you to Magnus Ericsson. And thanks to Sarah C. Thank you very much also to Lincoln Masters. And thank you to the wonderfully named Faderbog. And finally, thanks to the Angry Piper. Is there any other kind of Piper? (laughs) Answers on a postcard, please. I'm sure there's some very calm Pipers out there. Depends on the type of pipe. And if you do find yourself enjoying this episode or other episodes of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you told people about it. Maybe this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found or just talking to like-minded people about it on social media or or even in person. I understand that kind of thing happens sometimes. Nah, I'll never catch on. Tell your grocery boy. (laughs) Only if they've got an arrow floating above their head that says talk to this person and promote podcast. You can talk to anyone you like, Matt. They're all friendly. (laughs) Yeah, it's the you like bit where it falls down. I don't mean you have to like them. I mean, you can talk to people you choose. Again, hanging out with Matt Ryan, he talks to everyone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Matt's a good guy. (laughs) He is. He's great. Yes. Fantastic first name too. Yeah, well, okay. That's it for today. We're going to leave Innsmouth, but we've got a return ticket. We'll be back next time for more Innsmouth because we can't get enough of it. Until then, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous tones.